Good morning, CPC. My name is Will Cody, and I am the campus minister at Austin P. University, Austin P. State University for our denomination, and I am the guest preacher here today this morning, the special guest preacher here at CPC this morning. Um, so Stephen read the first half of our text. We're in the book of Judges. We're in chapter 6. If you want to turn there, it's around page 200-something in, in the church Bibles. Um, we left off with the reading... Let's see, just so everybody's there. You can also follow on the screen. 205, page 205 in these Bibles. Um, we left off at, from last week in Judges chapter 5 to Judges chapter 6. Where do we find the people of Israel again, which Stephen, which, uh, Stephen read? They're oppressed and they're in distress again because they've given up worshiping the Lord and they've turned to worshiping and they're following these local deities, the, the Baals and the Asheroth and the Asherah. And as happens again and again in this time in history during the time of the judges, when God's people forsake, when God's people forsake him, what he does is he gives them over to their enemies. And here we, he has given them over to the Midianites. And he lets his people experience life without him so that they would just cry out for help and come back to him. And after seven years, we read that they finally did it. After seven years of being crushed by the Midianites, they finally cry out to God because they just can't take it anymore. And God begins raising up this judge that we begin to hear about, Gideon, to save them and to be their hero, to be their judge. So we're gonna continue reading verse 25. We left off at verse 24. God has just met with Gideon and revealed himself to Gideon and revealed his purposes to Gideon. And the text, the chapter continues. So that very night, the Lord said to him, to Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones and then lay in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerobaal. That is to say, let Baal contend or let Baal struggle against him because Gideon broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the Valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. And the, Abiz the Abizirites <laughs> were called out to follow. I cannot pronounce that tried a million times. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, 
And they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. The grass withers, and the flower fades, and the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, as we open your word here and hear you speak to us, we pray that you would change us. This faithful, unrelenting God who loves his people so much, would you let us to realize that that's us and that you love us and that we can go out into this world obeying and trusting you and loving our enemies as you loved us when we were your enemies. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when I was in college, one of the many college jobs that I had was I worked for an industrial flooring company. And if you don't know what industrial flooring is, we would go into factories, we would go into warehouses when they needed a new floor redone, a new hard floor that can take a real beating. And they'd shut down the, the, uh, the warehouse or they shut down the factory for as little time as possible. We'd go in there, we'd work as hard and fast as we could, and we'd lay this uh, epoxy floor that could just withstand tons and tons of weight, forklifts, heavy, you know, tons, 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 big machines. And this epoxy that we used for the floor, it was really strong, and it, as it turned out, very toxic. <laughs> so what we would do is we would uh, we'd scrape up whatever was there before. We'd you know, jackhammer, whatever, get everything out of the way. And then we'd have this big cement mixer, and we'd mix in the sand and there's other chemicals and more chemicals, and it'd all get mixed up together. And it would start to get like hot on its own. And it would start to even be a little smoky sometimes. And we'd take that and we'd pour it all over the floor and even it out. And then that was, they had a perfect floor after that. So I'd been working, I was working all over the South, going to different places, staying in hotels. And I'd been working there for a couple months. And one time we were doing this job in Miami at the self-storage unit. And when I woke up in the morning after doing the pour, the pour on the floor, um, I remember feeling like so sleepy in my face. And I remember I was woke up and I'm like, why am I so sleep? Why do I feel so sleepy in my face? And I asked my roommate, because I had to share a room with somebody. I was like, why am I so sleepy? It's so hard to open my eyes. And he looked at me and he was like, you, dude, you need to look in the mirror. Uh, so I went and looked in the mirror and my face was, I was shocked. My face was like so swollen and puffy. And I didn't know what was going on. I wish I had taken a picture of it at the time so I could save it. Um, I couldn't figure out what was going on until I ran into my crew leader, and he was like, yeah, that epoxy does, does some weird things to people's bodies sometimes. <laughs> uh, so fast forward, even a couple weeks later, working at this Coca-Cola plant in Chattanooga, and again with the epoxy, and I wake up in the hotel the next morning, and I could not, I could barely open my eyes. That's how swollen my face was this time. It was like, I had to go like this to, to, uh, to see for part of the time. It was terrible, and again, I wish I had taken a picture. Uh, but my reaction to that epoxy was getting worse and worse. My body was like deteriorating. <laughs> Who knows what that thing was doing to my lungs, right? I'm, I can't believe people are, you know, do their whole lives doing that. Uh, but in our text, um, so I, I took this as a huge sign that I needed to 
get out of this job and find new employment somewhere else. It was the things that it was doing to my body. Um, in our text, God is giving his people all of these signs and all of these reasons that they need to give up what they are employed with, namely idol worship with the Baal and the Asherah, and to serve and to trust him instead. So God, God's heart just goes out to these terrible people that are destroying themselves, destroying their relationship with him, and he wants them and he wants us to trust him instead. And he has at least three things in this text that he does for these people that, um, it, that are proof that, he, that they should move toward him and trust him. So our three points today, first of all, the big idea is that you should trust the Lord. And you should trust the Lord, and here's the three points, because he does all these things. He gives us his word. Point two, he makes atonement. And point three, he sends a savior. So let's look at point one. He gives us his word. Um, Stephen read this earlier. The people of Israel have been overcome. And it's primarily from the Midianites, but apparently the Amalekites and the people of the East, they're getting in on this action too, because Israel is so low and so weak, and their enemies are swarming in like locusts, and they're devouring everything that they can get their hands on. Bef you know, before the previous judge, Deborah, arose, village life ceased in Israel. We read that last week. But here it gets even worse. They're devouring all of Israel's food, all of their sustenance, all of their sheep and donkeys and, and oxen, they're just taking them from them. And they have no way to defend themselves. Everything they needed to live on. So they have to begin fleeing to the mountains and the caves and these um, strongholds that they, make, that they make out there in order to keep from getting ravaged from these people. And this is a new low for Israel. It's gonna get lower, but this is a new low for Israel. If you've read this book, or been around when we've been preaching it, you know what is coming next. After they get to this low, low point, what do they do? They cry out to the Lord for help. And this happens a few times in Judges. They cry out for help, and usually God sends a judge, a hero, to save them. But before he does this, he sends somebody else. Um, Stephen read it. He sent a prophet. He sends somebody. Now, when you think about prophet, um, often what we think about, because so God sends a prophet to these people, we usually think prophets, my go-to, is that prophets are gonna tell me the future, like they're foretellers of what is going to happen in the future. But more, way more often than not in the Bible, what prophets are is they're not foretellers telling the future, they're forth-tellers. They're just telling what is true. They're telling what is real and what's happening right now. And he sends prophets at times when people can't see or understand and, or the people don't wanna see and don't wanna understand, this is when God sends his prophets to tell them what is true. God speaks through the prophets to these people. God speaks here to the people of Israel. And here's what God tells them. Here's what God tells them is true. Y'all are not getting it, but here's what is true, starting in verse eight. He says, I led you up from Egypt and I brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. And I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. So what God is doing here is he's telling them what is true. This calamity that you are experiencing, it's not some random thing that's happening. It's, you're not, you don't have a case of bad luck. This isn't because I hate you. It's because you've forsaken me. I saved you from slavery in Egypt. 
I brought you here and I destroyed all of your enemies and I brought you here to worship me, to, to be a blessing to the world, but you have decided that you wanna worship Baal and the Asherah instead, the gods of the Amorites. These gods, remember, they, they demand things like human sacrifices. These gods, they demand things like, uh, you know, those cult, uh, uh, cult prostitution that happens at their temples. And I'm not going to, God says, I'm not going to prosper you in this. I'm not going to protect you in this. I'm not gonna defend you in this. This is why I have given you over to the peoples of the gods you wanna worship so that you will see how terrible this all is. See how terrible they are. See how terrible this is. See how terrible this worship is and come back to me. This is why God lets the, their enemies come and take them over. Because the people, seem to, the people seem to have absolutely no idea what is going on at all. They're lost in the darkness of their idolatry and their sins. And what does God do in response? God sends them. He doesn't leave them alone. That would be the worst thing he could do is to leave them alone. Instead, he sends them his word through this prophet. And this is the same for us today. We're totally lost. Human beings, human humanity, we are totally lost and in the dark without him sending his word to us. Ryan read something from uh, the Gospel of John, but the same thing about the darkness, the light shining into the darkness. God's word, the Bible as we have it today, tells us what is real, what is true, and what is going on. And the good news is that God has not left us alone, confused about what's going on. God enters into history. He speaks into the mess of humanity that we have made by his word. For example, I remember uh, when I first went to a church that like, was faithfully preaching and teaching the, the Bible, reading and preaching the Bible, um, when I was in high school. And I remember thinking, wow, this actually makes sense of the world. This makes sense of the world for the first time. I'm hearing this very clearly. This makes sense. This makes sense of the mess that is out there. This makes sense of the painful mess that I was experiencing for my own broken family. Hey, Faith. <laughs> she is so good at escaping. <laughs> so I remember I went to this church and they were te teaching the Bible faithfully. And I remember thinking, this makes sense of, my, of reality. This makes sense of the mess out there. This makes sense of the painful stuff in my own family that was going on. This, makes, this totally makes sense. The problem is sin. People are not obeying what God says to do and they're hurting people. It also, not only, not only explained out there, it also explained in here. Why do I do all of these bad and hurtful things? Like, it's true, I am sinned against, but that still doesn't make sense of the mean things that I do to people who absolutely don't deserve it. And I realized that's sin out there and that's sin in here. That's disobeying God and hurting people. Now, God could have just, this is totally new categories for me that totally made sense of my reality. Now, God could have just left them alone. He could have just left me alone. That would have been the worst thing that could possibly have happened. But he sends his word to them. Instead of letting them wallow in the consequences of their sins, and not having any idea how to respond. Instead, he graciously condescends to speak to them and to speak to us. And the Bible has lots of things to say. There's a lot in the Bible. You can never get to the end of it. But we're, we're gonna get to some of it today. But it answers all of the important questions that humans have been asking forever. 
And one of the most important fundamental things that it says about reality over and over again is that we are rebels and we've made ourselves enemies to God by disobeying him, not trusting him and running away. And you know what? This is kind of, this is good news in a sense. It, was, it felt really good to hear this when I was in high school. This makes sense of the world, finally. It makes sense of the world better than any system that I've ever heard of before. Sin, disobedience to God. This is what breaks families. This is what breaks friends. This is what um, destroys people's lives. This is what breaks your relationship with God. And the fact that God is sharing this with this people is a sign that he has not given up on his commitment to this people. He wants them to realize the mess that they are in. He wants them to come back to him. He wants this people. He gives them his word because he loves them and they can trust him. And after speaking this hard truth, could be a hard truth to these people, he doesn't just leave them there. He doesn't leave them there. Y'all are sinners. Goodbye. He doesn't leave them there. He does a lot more. Here's our second point. Not only does he send his word of the truth of what is happening, of reality, he also makes atonement. Now, if you're not familiar with this word, atonement, it's a big word, we don't use it a lot. Atonement is reparations for something that you did wrong. So if I were to steal your car and then just crash it into the Red River, we would have a bad relationship probably, right? Um, but if I atone for what I did, if I bought you, I took the... I. Um, paid for a new car and took it out of me, and I atoned, that would be my atonement. I would atone by buying you a new car, and then our relationship would be peaceful again. And our second point is that we crash God's world and our relationship to him, and he responds not by making us pay the reparations, not by making us pay the penalty, not for making us pay for the car. Instead, he pays the, the penalty instead. He pays for the car instead. He pays the penalty that we deserve to pay so that we can be in a good relationship again and be at peace. He makes atonement for us when we sin. Let's see how this plays out in this text because it's kind of surprising. Look with me at verse 12. I don't have a slide for this, but um, after God sends this prophet, there's this young guy and his name is Gideon and he's threshing wheat in a wine press. So he, what he's doing is he's hiding what he's doing so none of the puffs of dust go into the air and the Midianites see and come steal his, his wheat. He's hiding in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and charges him with striking and defeating the Midianites. And God confirms that he is who he says he is by uh, taking his staff on the goat, the goat dinner and the goat uh, juice and burning it all up right in front of Gideon's eyes. And when he realizes who this is he's talking about, Gideon freaks out. Um, it, this happens all in the Bible. This happens so many times. Look at verse 21. The angel tells him to put the cakes and the meat on a rock and to pour the broth over it. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He thinks he's going to die. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Now, why does Gideon get so freaked out when he realizes that this was a manifestation of the Lord that he had seen face to face? 
Well, several times in the Bible, God tells people that they cannot see his face and live. And that if you were to see God's face, if you were to encounter him, if you were to encounter God directly, without any buffer, without any intermediate, if you were to be close and intimate with God, which is what this face-to-face phrase symbolizes, then you would die. And it's not that God is like ultra shy, right? He's like, don't, get, don't look at me, don't get too close to me. And we actually don't have any record of this happening. In fact, we have lots of records of it not happening and people it blowing their minds that they're not dead. But the reason that encountering him like this is so terrifying is because he is holy. And he is holy and we are not. He is, he is infinite in his being, in his glory, in his perfection. But he's also morally perfect. He is ultra-wise and just and merciful and good. He's perfectly good and merciful. And we are not. We are people that disobey him. We are people that grieve him. We are people that hurt each other and this world that he created. And the thing is, no sin, no uncleanness, no foulness can ever be in his presence. It will be destroyed in his presence, wiped out by his holy presence. That's why Gideon is so freaked out when he realizes who he's been talking to. He knows that he is a rebel. He knows that he is a sinner and that he's a goner. But he's seen God face to face and his response, and he lived in his response is verse 24. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. So he builds an altar on the rock where this sacrificial meal went up and he calls it, the Lord is peace. Because instead of destroying Gideon because he was an enemy, God made peace with his enemy, Gideon. But then God takes, after he makes peace with Gideon, he's gonna take this to a crazy length. Look, read, read, continue to read with me as God takes this peacemaking so much further. God tells Gideon to tear down the altar of Baal that his dad has. Apparently his dad has his altar of Baal on his property and everybody in the town in Orpha, they all go worship Baal there. And Gideon tells him, tear it down, and I want you to build me, me an altar instead. And I want you to take the Asherah pole that's there, and I want you to cut it up, and I want you to make a sacrifice for me there on the altar. But then, verse 28, this is where we, we just read a minute ago. Verse 28 says, I think we have a slide for this. Maybe not. Uh, but then, verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So the men of the town are freaking out because they're worried that Baal is gonna be mad at them, right? Because and he's gonna make their crops die. Who knows what, what he's gonna make happen. And they ask around and probably one of Gideon's friends squealed on him because he had like 10 friends that helped him with this. And now the whole town wants to kill Gideon. And Gideon, if, you were, if I was Gideon, I would be hiding somewhere. Um, I'm, he's probably hiding somewhere. Now let's take this scene in with, come with me to Orpha. <laughs> and let's take this scene in. Imagine that you're in the town square here, and what would you see 
what would you see in this moment? You'd see a lot of scared, angry men, right? <coughs> You'd probably hear them calling for Gideon's death. They're like, where is he? Let's get him. Where is he? You know, they're probably running around trying to find Gideon so, so the Baal would be appeased. And what would you smell? If you were to follow your nose in this scene, where would your nose take you? Well, you would follow your nose up the stronghold to the top where you would see an altar that Gideon had built for the Lord. And what are you smelling on that altar? You're smelling this smoldering sacrificial bowl that Gideon had, Gideon had put there early in the morning and set it on fire. What was God doing having Gideon make an altar and sacrifice a bull on it? At first, it almost seems like, at first, and this is kind of how I read this for a while, at first it almost seemed like some kind of protest, like he's protesting the culture or something, like I'll show you, neighbor with a pride flag, I'll show you, I'm gonna put a Christian flag in my, or whatever that looks like, in my yard. It's like a protest, it seems like, but it's not. It's deeper and it's better. What's happening here was God was making peace with this town. God was making peace with this people. The text says that God told Gideon that to make a burnt offering. A burnt offering, if you read Leviticus 1, a burnt offering is where sin was atoned for. But it wasn't, an, as God pays the price for your sin in this bull, so it wasn't you that paid the price for your sin, it was the animal that does it. The animal paid the reparation, which was death. Paid the price for your sin, which is death. That's what happened to this bull. This is what God had Gideon set up in their town a means to atonement. God was atoning for the sin of these terrible people. Now look at the scene again. Remember, we have a town where God has sent a savior to save them from idol worship, from their sins, from the Midianites, and God has provided atonement for sin through him. And that atonement, it's like right there. It's right there next to the thing, next to that building over there. It, atonement is right there for your sins. And the people are doing what? They're trying to kill their savior. They're trying to kill their savior, Gideon. This gets crazy in Samson. I can't wait till we get to Samson where they, they really try to kill Samson. The Israelites try to kill Samson because they love worshiping the Philistine God so much. Back to Gideon. Here's the contrast. Baal requires death, your death for transgression. Baal's gonna be so mad at us. We need to make atonement right now. We need to find Gideon and kill him. Meanwhile, in contrast, the Lord has suffered years of transgressions from the Israelites, his people. And his response, send a savior, send atonement. Take care of these people's problems for them. He bleeds with compassion for these miserable people. He can't, God cannot help himself but to save them because he loves them so much. In fact, this burnt offering in this text points to the ultimate last sacrifice of Jesus. That bull that symbolically took the sins of the townspeople as they trusted in God's provision to take care of their sin, we trust in the sacrifice of Jesus that that sacrifice ultimately points to. He actually saves us. The bull symbolically saves them so they know that they're saved, but they don't know why. We know why, because it was all pointing to the actual sacrifice of Jesus. He took the punishment for our sins. He's the atonement that makes peace with God for us.
And notice, crazy, it's even crazier. Um, does atonement happen before or after they've done anything good? It's 100% before. While they are enemies to God, while they are trying to kill Gideon, this is when God makes atonement for them. Paul puts it this way. Then we have this in Romans 5. Um, he says in Romans 5, verse 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. So while we were bad, Jesus dies for us. While these people are bad, through and through, he makes atonement for them. When you're bad, before you do anything good, we trust in Jesus and all our sins are forgiven and we're reconciled with God and we're still bad. We're simultaneously sinners and simultaneously right with God. This is what Christianity is all about. It's good news for bad people. Atonement, forgiveness for your transgressions and sins, peace with God, fellowship and intimacy with the Lord, it's right here. It's for bad people. He provides everything you need. What's the one thing that he wants us to do? Just trust him. And where does that faith, where does that trust come from? He gives it to that, he gives that to us too. <laughs> it's crazy. So God provides his word and you can trust him. You can trust his word. You can trust him. God makes atonement and you should trust in it. And finally, God provides a savior and you should trust in this savior. So sometime after this, we're not sure how long, the Amalekites, they and all their friends, they're gonna come give Israel another, another visit, <laughs> take all their stuff. And they swarm in. And we read in verse 34, as they begin to swarm in, verse 34, the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet. And the, Ab the Abizarites, that's Gideon's clan, those people, they were called out to follow him. And he sent out messengers through all Manasseh. Manasseh is Gideon's tribe. And they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So these names are four of the 12 tribes of Israel. And after seven years of cowering, of seven years of getting their butts whooped, they are responding to the call to war, finally, after what, after what God has done. And as they muster for the ensuing battle, which we will get to the next time we're in Judges, we have this scene with Gideon. It zeroes in on this final scene with Gideon, their savior and their leader. And he's at the, the threshing floor two days before they march off to battle. And it's kind of an incredible scene. Um, we read in the next chapter that there are like 30,000 at least um, villagers that have taken on the role of soldier and they've stepped into this role to join with Gideon. And again, like last week, um, these people, especially Gideon, are unprepared, they're untrained, they probably have no, you know, they probably have no experience with war. And if I was Gideon, or if you were Gideon, I would love some assurance that God is going to be with me. And that's what he asked for here. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl 
with water. So Gideon does this thing where he puts a fleece out overnight, and God does this miracle, and he makes the fleece filled with water while everything else around is completely dry. And then the next day, he asks for the opposite miracle, so the fleece is completely dry and everything's wet all around. God answers both of his requests and is with a resounding yes. Now, to be clear here, hold on a second. Um, Gideon is not asking, a lot of confusion about this text I've read. Uh, God, Gideon is not asking which, God, God is not, Gideon is not asking God to help him make a decision. He's not asking him, God, Gideon is not asking God, should I move to New York or should I move to Albuquerque? Should I have chicken or steak? Should I go to this restaurant or this restaurant? He's not asking about decisions to make. His issue is, God, will you be with me? This is the thing he wants to know. This is the thing he needs to know. This is what that whole conversation when they first met in the, in the wine press, this is where G Gideon was complaining. He's, he's like, you guys, God has forsaken us. He's not with us. And what is God telling him in the wine press, verse 13? He says, Gideon, the Lord is with you. I am with you. I will be with you. This is what Gideon wants assurance with, assurance for. And the people that Gideon is leading, what they are going to battle, you know what they're going to battle against? They're going to battle against the repercussions for their sin. This is what Gideon is leading them in. These enemies are here because they had decided to trust in idols. But as many as turned and trusted in the Lord, the Lord saved, he made atonement for them. And spoiler alert, they are going to trounce the Midianites in the next chapter. If you wanna read ahead for next time. Um, but this, this story points to another savior that would come about a thousand years after this too. But, and he, he came also to save a people from the repercussions for their sins. But his salvation would be much more harrowing than it ever was for Gideon. And this savior would have no assurance in the end. When, when this savior, when he asked the father, if there was any way to save this people without taking the punishment on the cross, the father said, no. There's not. When this Savior was dying on the cross, he got no assurance. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no fleece. There were no meals burning up on a rock. So he knew the Father was with him because he actually was forsaken. The people of Israel, they are the ones that should have been forsaken. The people of this town, they are the ones that should have been forsaken. Me, I am the one that you, you are the one who should have been forsaken. But Jesus took it for you. He took the punishment for you while you were his enemy. He was forsaken by God, curse on the cross. One of the things that Judges, the book of Judges, hammers again and again is that God will not forsake his people. No matter what, and if this God is so committed to them at their worst, and we haven't even gotten to the worst yet, y'all, um, then he will be just as faithful to you. And you know, Gideon had, what's cool is Gideon had this fleece, right, to assure him of God's commitment, assure him of God's presence, that God is with him. You know, uh, Gideon wanted this tangible evidence. He wanted to wring out the, the fleece and see the bowl filled with water to get some assurance. And I don't know about you, but I'm tempted some, sometimes think, man, I wish that I could experience that to know that he is really committed to me, some kind of thing like this, some kind of token. And if you are tempted as well toward this, 
I have some good news for you. We have something better. We have, this morning, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is a meal for his people. And we take this bread and we take the cup, which point to his body and his blood, which point to his sacrificial death for us. The length that he went to save you from the consequences for your sins. We take the body and the blood of Jesus and we eat and we drink. And Jesus assures us through the Holy Spirit, just like with Gideon, that he is with us and that he is faithful to us. Just like Gideon was strengthened in knowing that God was with him, as we partake of the bread and the cup, these are signs of Jesus' commitment to us, that he died for us. And the Holy Spirit will bring, brings it home to us that yes, he is with me, he is for me, and I can trust him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he's speaking about this meal, and he says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after, cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is for those who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, people who have become a member of a church and been baptized. And our desire is to grow in trusting him and that would lead out into obedience in our lives. So this is a family meal for those for whom Jesus died for. But if you are here and you're curious about Christianity, we are very glad you're here. Um, I or any of the other leaders would love to talk to you. But this is a meal for those who have publicly professed faith, been baptized, and become a member at a church. And we would ask that you would refrain from the table. And please talk to me or one of the other elders later. Um, if I could ask the elders to come up and uh, musicians, I'll explain what's going on with the bread and stuff. So we have, um, uh, if, you, if you need gluten-free bread, it's in the middle of the uh, where the little cups are. Uh, we have normal bread for... Um, anybody else? Everybody else? And I am going to pray. And you can come up row by row, starting in the front. And you can eat the bread. And when everyone is seated, take your cup and bring it back together. And um, we will partake of the cup together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to be the atonement for us when we could not do it ourselves, did not want to do it couldn't. We were helpless, and you knew it, and your great, your great heart for us sent your son. We pray that in this meal, as we take the bread and eat the, and eat the bread and drink the drink of the cup, would you bring home to us what Jesus has done for us so we can trust him more. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.